Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Have you ever been to Washington, D.C.? It's a beautiful, bustling city. For me, one of the most compelling things about Washington, D.C. are all of the distinctive and evocative monuments and memorials that have been placed all throughout our nation's capital. Over the last two centuries, these monuments and memorials have been erected to remind us of the pivotal moments, the experiences of immense heartbreak and sorrow, the times of great courage and honor, as well as the past sacrifices that we must never forget. These statues, these monuments, these memorials tell a story, the story of what has shaped our history as a country. They reflect not only who we choose to remember and value, but those we do not. And that's a painful but undeniable truth that's at the heart of the recent controversies and protests about the many monuments and memorials throughout the United States. At their best, when they are most inclusive, These statues dedicate to us, this is it. This is where everything changed. For better or worse, this is where history changed its course, and these are the people that were there. They remind us of where we've been so as to challenge us to keep moving forward in the right direction. Not just in America, but throughout the story of the people of God, we find many different monuments that were raised up for the next generation to remember how the Lord intervened in the unfolding of their story, of how the Lord had brought them forward into the future. One of the patriarchs named Jacob, for instance, marked the site of a place he called Bethel, or the house of God, where the Lord first made his presence known through a divinely initiated vision of a stairway to heaven. Or there was Joshua, who followed Moses. Joshua, who after the Lord led the people across the dry riverbed of what had only moments ago been the flooded Jordan River, Joshua built a monument out of some of the large stones of that river on its bank. And there it stood, at the entrance to the Promised Land, so that the children of God would not lose sight of how far the Lord had already brought them, and thus would continue to trust God to carry and guide them even further on. Today, as we turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, we will hear the story of yet another monument being constructed in the aftermath of a surprising victory. But, as we'll soon discover, more than a remembrance of what happened, this touchstone was created so that everyone would never forget who made it happen, as well as how the people were able to experience that victory. So with not only our ears, but our hearts and our minds open, let's listen to the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 7. And please remember to keep your Bibles open as the passage we are looking at today goes well beyond what's about to be read out loud. Our scripture reading for today is 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 10. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, Then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths, and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, 
and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we last left the people of Israel, they had just suffered a surprising and crushing defeat at the hands of their rival, the Philistines. In many ways, this defeat was the final nail in the coffin after several decades of open corruption and abuse by the religious leadership and a general spiritual apathy among the people. The Lord God had become for Israel an idol, a means to their ends, rather than someone to whom they were devoted through a committed relationship, rather than being the one who centered and shaped their life together. And all of this was epitomized in Israel's last major conflict with the Philistines. After experiencing an initial defeat, the Israelites, on their own initiative and without giving any thought to asking the Lord, the Israelites trotted out the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield. Supremely confident that they had God in a box, the Israelites were convinced they would win the day. But by day's end, they left with their tail between their legs, leaving more than 30,000 of their own lost in the battle, with the Ark of the Covenant also having been captured by the Philistines. And even then, even in the throes of their own blindness and failure, even then, the takeaway of the people was that the glory of the Lord had departed from them, rather than realizing it was they who had departed from seeking God's glory. Eventually, the Ark of the Covenant came back to Israel. Or, if we remember from last week, it was sent back by the Philistines, who, though they painfully came to realize that Yahweh is the Lord, chose not to bow down before a God who will not be held hostage. Rather than submit before a God they could, couldn't control and manipulate, the Philistines escorted the one true God out of their lives and community. And this is where our story picks up. The ark has returned. And Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, Samuel reappears in the narrative. He's been out of the picture since just before that decisive battle against the Philistines back in chapter 4. And in the time that's passed, about seven months, Samuel has also been serving as the high priest of Israel. All the while, since their devastating loss to the Philistines, Israel has remained under the thumb of their mortal enemy. And seemingly, it's in this context, the ongoing reality of their oppression, that spurs all the people of Israel to come to Samuel and declare their need for the Lord God Almighty. And so Samuel calls for the loose confederation of the tribes of Israel to gather together at a place called Mizpah, some two miles northeast of Samuel's hometown of Ramah. And there at Mizpah, 
Samuel leads the people in a big tent revival worship service with not just their words, but also through various physical, tangible gestures of reconciliation, prayer, and fasting, the people offer themselves back to the Lord God. This whole offering of self is perhaps best reflected through Samuel's sacrifice of a lamb, a lamb that represents all Israel in their refocus and renewal of their relationship with Yahweh. Meanwhile, the Philistines, having learned that all of Israel is gathered at Mizpah, strategically decide to launch a surprise attack. In response, the people of Israel begin to freak out and fear their annihilation. But Samuel does not rally the troops to provide a counter-defensive stand. Samuel just keeps on leading the people in worship, in praise and sacrifice. And the Philistines, as they advance, they never make it through the front door to Israel's camp. Instead, the Philistines run smack into a little divine thunder and lightning. Very, very frightening. And it is Yahweh who they encounter on the battlefield. Baal, one of the chief gods of the Philistines, supposedly was the god of storms. Well, on that fateful day, the Philistines learned the hard way who, in fact, was the Lord over the weather, the Lord over all creation. Thrown into confusion, the Philistine army is soundly defeated before a single Israelite steps into the conflict. They are routed as the Israelites pursue them in their retreat. Victorious, Israel recaptures all their lands that had previously been taken. And to mark this crucial moment in Israel's history and her relationship with the Lord, Samuel takes a stone and builds a monument that he calls Ebenezer. And then we're told the power and might of the Philistines remain decisively broken for the rest of Samuel's life. Now, this appears to be a really straightforward story. However, we need to be clear about what happens here, as well as why. First, let's look more closely at Samuel's response when the people first come to him seeking to return to the Lord. It's taken many months and several losses for the people of Israel to finally confess their need for God. Samuel, however, is initially unimpressed by Israel's tears. Because apparently, did you notice, in these last seven months, the people's initial problem of taking God lightly, of trying to make God into an idol, has worsened into worshiping other false gods. The gods of their oppressors. The gods of the Philistines. For Samuel, while their crying out to the Lord is all well and good, what is needed is their repentance. Letting go of their dependence and trust, their ultimate allegiance upon anyone or anything except for the Lord God. Basically, what Samuel asks here is, where will you stand in relation to Yahweh? How far are you willing to go in following the Lord? This God who is committed to going the distance to the ends of the earth and beyond for you. And so the people of Israel cast aside all their idols, all their other priorities and extracurricular activities. They put aside all their other time commitments in their busy schedules. They put aside all their other fail-safes and backup plans, all the divisions and differences between them, and gather together in unity. And so what we witness here in this story is that while confession is a necessary and right starting point in our relationship with Jesus, 
What we witness here is this by itself doesn't mean we are following Christ. Being sorry, acknowledging wrong, confessing we need help means nothing. It is no more than mere sentiment without repentance. Sorrow itself is not the same thing as repentance. Repentance is more than a feeling. Repentance is more than words. Repentance is a choice, a decision, a response. Biblically, repentance is turning away from beliefs, words, and actions that are counter to, that are offensive to divine love, truth, and justice, and turning toward the way, truth, and the life of our Creator. That's intended for all of us, for all creation, as definitively revealed in the person and life of Jesus Christ. Repentance is more than changing one's mind. Repentance is yielding to the Holy Spirit's changing of our heart and the transformation of our character. Now, initially it would appear the people of Israel are repenting when they come to Samuel. The very first verse we heard read today says, Then all the people turned back to the Lord, doesn't it? But Samuel will have none of it. Samuel will have none of it. Why? Because the people are turning back to the Lord because they perceive their problem to be the Philistines, the force opposing them on the outside. Notice, however, how Samuel redirects the people to see that, in fact, all their trouble, what they need to turn away from, is the enemy within. The enemy within their false sense of health and prosperity, security and comfort that they were attaching to the idols they were worshiping. Beloved, sometimes our life is under siege because of forces external to us. We are attacked, we are persecuted, we are oppressed by no fault of our own. I don't want anyone who is listening to this to understand that every time, every time we face hardship, suffer abuse or endure loss, that it's always our fault. Living in a broken world that is not the way it's supposed to be, bad things can and do happen over which we have no control or blame. At the same time, there are often situations and circumstances where we perceive the problem to be somebody else's doing, someone else's fault, to be out there, rather than facing and admitting the difficulty the challenge is in here. Not all, but many of our struggles, our battles in our relationships, our battles in our work and our play, our battles in our own personal health of body, mind, and spirit, are problems within our own hearts, within our own thinking, within our own being. Because idolatry is not simply the worship of wood and stone statues. The problem of idolatry is setting the primary focus of one's mind, heart, and will on anything or anyone save God in Christ alone. It's seeking one's true abundance and fulfillment in relationships, in possessions, in experiences, and achievements that cannot bear the weight of providing our identity and our security. Our addiction to idols, our attempts to make other people and other things would-be messiahs in our lives leads not to our blessing and salvation, but to our selfishness, our greed and our envy, our self-doubt and our fear. It leads to competing loyalties, to divided selves and fractured relationships. Only in Jesus, 
Only in following Christ do we discover who we truly are. Our value and our worth that does not have to be earned or achieved by anything we do. Only in Jesus, following Christ, do we also find out all that we can become the best and whole version of ourselves, not by our own strength or brilliance, but through yielding to the work of the Spirit, both in and through us. Repentance is an action. It's faith in action. It's submitting to, it's trusting, it's loving and honoring the God who loves and honors us first, even when we fail, even when we forget him. Crying out to the Lord for deliverance necessitates our intention to follow where and how the Lord leads us. And that takes us to something else that we need to see in this story, who it is that fights the battle and wins it. Notice at the Battle of Ebenezer, there is actually little military engagement on the part of the Israelites. I mean, they pursue in the aftermath of the victory. But this triumph, this win, belongs not to Israel, it's not to Samuel, but to Yahweh, to the Lord. The victory belongs to the Lord. Beloved, we need to let the Lord fight the battles we face. We need to let the Lord fight the battles we face. Now that's a provocative statement that begs for clarification. So let's be clear. Not every battle we face is of the Lord. Some battles are ones we instigate and prosecute apart from God. Some battles are not of the Lord, even though we try to attach the name of God to our own personal or corporate crusade. No, to say we need to let the Lord fight the battles we face is to trust the Lord to fight the battles that are worth fighting for. And more often than not, as we've previously discussed, they are the battles within. The struggle within the human heart and mind to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our Creator, to live in devotion to God, in a way that's reflected by being as devoted to the well-being of our neighbors as we are devoted to our own well-being. Letting the Lord fight such battles doesn't mean we as the people of God don't have a part to play. Samuel, you'll notice, leads the people not in fighting, but in worshiping. The people confess and pray. They fast and sacrifice while the Lord accomplishes the victory on their behalf. However, I want to be clear, what we witness here is not some mechanical or magical formula. It, this is not some ritualistic call and response. It's not that we repent, we pray, and God does whatever we ask, that the Lord fights the battles we initiate. No. Rather, we repent, we pray, and this opens us up. This makes us receptive and yielding to what the Lord wills and purposes to do before us. The battles that God chooses to join, not that we orchestrate ourselves. And if we think of prayer as an armament in such battles, it is definitely more of a defensive rather than an offensive weapon. Prayer is designed to protect us from ourselves, to open us up to the refuge and strength that only can be found in the Lord. And one more time, the battles the Lord is fighting are more often than not the battles within the human heart and mind. For repentance is a choice, a decision, an action we must repeat daily. The battle against idolatry is not a one and done sort of thing. 
as works in progress in following Jesus every day, every day, we continue to face the temptation of giving our allegiance, of putting our trust, of devoting ourselves to another false god, to someone or something that promises us a quick and easy fix, a simple three-step low-cost solution, someone or something that offers us someone else to blame, a scapegoat, all the while assuring us that it's not we who need to be changed. It's them. They are the ones who need to change. My friends, if we can't recognize the constant threat of idolatry in our lives, then we haven't been paying very much attention during this past year of the pandemic and the election season. Because the more the form of our idols change, the more the root of them stays the same. And it's only through not just confession, but also repentance that we must repeatedly, daily, choose against other forms of peace and health, other forms of security and prosperity, and decide to worship Christ, to move and follow Jesus' direction as he fights for us. Samuel here, however, knew something. And that leads to one final observation we need to make about this story. Samuel knew that we are a forgetful people that in the absence of our memory about God, we always end up taking the credit. And when we take the credit, that becomes the starting point that gives root to all of our problems with idolatry. It becomes the worship of ourselves, putting ourselves at the center of the universe rather than the Lord. So Samuel instead sets up a commemorative stone between Mizpah and Shen, we're told, and he names it Ebenezer. Now, if you're like me, the first thing you think of when you hear the name Ebenezer, right, is Ebenezer Scrooge, the friendless miser who is profoundly transformed after being visited by three spirits on Christmas Eve. And if that's not your association, maybe Ebenezer calls to mind a line that you've always wondered about, right? Whenever we sing that famous classic hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, here's the line. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. If you've ever scratched your head and said, what does that verse mean? This story gives us the answer. Samuel erects this monument and calls it Ebenezer because Ebenezer means stone of help. Samuel underscores this when he says in naming the monument, thus far, the Lord has helped us. Why did Samuel call it Ebenezer? Because if we look back to chapter 4, and I invite you to go back to chapter 4, it's at Ebenezer that the Israelites were camped when they lost so badly, when the ark of the Lord was taken. And now, when they look to this Ebenezer, this monument of stone, they will remember their sin, their sheer unmitigated folly that got them into their situation in the first place. But now they will also recall the grace of God, the grace of God that saved them from themselves, the grace of God that fought the battle they couldn't win on their own. Why? Did Samuel call this stone memorial Ebenezer? Because, beloved, in our walk with Jesus, there is not only the need for God's grace, there is not only the experience of God's grace, but there is also the remembrance of God's grace. We are a forgetful people. We so easily forget thus far 
how the Lord has helped us. We so quickly turn away from the Lord rather than realizing we daily need to repent, to turn back to Christ so that the Lord can help us go even further through today and into tomorrow, beyond eventually even death itself. As you look back on your life, as you look back on your journey of faith with Jesus, when and where has it been abundantly clear that Christ became real to you? That the Lord was intervening on your behalf? If you're struggling to recognize or remember those moments in your life, ask a trusted family member or friend to reflect with you on this. And as you try to recall, keep in mind the reality of God's presence in our lives isn't always mystical or, or awe-inspiring. It can be that, but it can also be evident in the small, subtle, but profoundly defining breakthroughs that might otherwise seem or feel pedestrian. For me, for me, there are Ebenezer's, there are monuments to Christ's ever-presence and abiding faithfulness all over my life. But I didn't always recognize those places in the moment. I didn't always recognize those places even right away in hindsight. Many of my Ebenezer's became visible to me only when I turned back to the Lord. Only when I turned back after getting ahead of God. Only when I turned back after just purely trying to go my own way. But now though, as I daily remember those places, I find myself less prone to wander, to navel gaze and start worshiping myself. Instead, by the grace of God and thanks to the work of the Spirit, I am better able, thanks to those Ebenezer's, to keep my thoughts and my words and my actions focused on Christ. May you remember your Ebenezer's and may the Lord God give you and all of us many more of them as together we follow Christ. Because a posture of repentance can become more than an act of religious obligation. It can become an orientation of an eager, joyous life of worship in Christ when we look to the Ebenezer's in our lives and remember how far the Lord has brought us. For our deliverance is what the Lord offers us. Our deliverance is what the Lord offers us when we cannot help ourselves. But my friends, we cannot be delivered when we aren't willing to be rescued, if we're still trying to save ourselves. The resurrection life that we can have in Christ begins not with confession, but with repentance, with turning around from trying to avoid or cheat death and following the work and the voice of Jesus, who rolls away the stone and calls us forth from the tomb. Victory follows repentance because as we turn toward Christ and follow him, we are moving towards the winning side, the only direction that brings new life, a life changed for the better, the only path that can transform, that can transform what was once a place of our former defeat into a touchstone of our victory in Jesus, a sign of our eternal redemption. And once we see how far Jesus has brought us, we can continue to look forward and go where Christ wants to lead us, knowing the best is yet to come. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.